I'm John Crane. And I'm Bernie Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session. With our dad, Jason Crane. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 434 for Monday, April 21st, 2014. On today's show, trombonist and vocalist Emily Asher. The Jazz Session is member-supported. $5 a month gets you MP3s and other exclusive content. Thanks so much to everyone who has become a member so far. We've got uh, more than two dozen members, which is great, building back up after the year off. I'm uploading MP3s by today's guest and by another mystery person, so if you want to find out who that is, just become a member by visiting thejazzsession.com slash join. Please rate the show in iTunes and leave a review, hopefully a positive one. It does help the show climb up the iTunes rankings and makes it more likely that other folks will find it. You can also leave a comment on the post for today's show if you'd like to interact with me or with the artist. That's a great way to do it. And the Jazz Session has openings for advertising. It is $300 to sponsor one episode and $1,000 for a whole month for shows. That's a 30-second ad read at the beginning and end of each show by yours truly. So if you're interested in doing that, drop me an email at jason at thejazzsession.com. When I was in New York this last time, my first day of interviews was... (laughs) Not that smartly scheduled, if I'm being honest. I started in Brooklyn, where I was staying, went to Astoria in Queens, went all the way across Queens to Bayside, all the way back to Brooklyn to do interviews in those three locations. Uh, The final one, and I think I was even there on time. I think I was even there early, actually. I even had time to go into a comic book shop. That is how efficient a traveler I was. Uh, The final interview of that day was with Emily Asher, a trombonist and vocalist, and a person who works in the trad jazz world, which doesn't really make its way onto this show all that much, not for any reason, except that I just haven't known all that many people in that world. So I was excited to get a chance to talk to Emily. Uh, Dalton Ridenauer is another interview you might want to seek out in the archives of the Jazz Session if you'd like to know more about this kind of music. Let's hear some music from Emily Asher and her band Garden Party, and then my conversation with Emily. My guest is trombonist and vocalist Emily Asher. It's great to meet you. Thanks for being on the show. Great to meet you, too. Thanks for coming here and doing this. My pleasure. We, I mean, normally I don't talk about where we are, but we're in this really wild 
pretty cool place uh, here in Brooklyn, which has just uh, every surface is a different color. And I mean, it just it looks like an amazing kind of children's playhouse or something that right. we're in. I really I really dig it. 2012, uh, you put out Dreams May Take You, and then last year, Carnival of Joy, um, both of which were really well-received. And you represent, I think, only the second time in all of the episodes of this show that someone from the particular strain of jazz that you play has ever appeared on the jazz session. Um, Kind of somebody from the more trad jazz world, which I think is really cool. And Mm -hmm. uh, I thought maybe we could start by asking why you chose that kind of uncommon place to make your musical home. Yeah, well, it it started when I was, I think I was 14. Um, there happened to be a family that had a son who was 11 at the time, um, and his father, so Jeff Dorr, uh, his son Mike Dorr. Uh, Jeff had played in a traditional jazz group when he was younger, and then um, started a band called Rise and Shine. And it just happened to be a few blocks from my house that they were rehearsing, and they found out about me. Um, this I might is in have been, Seattle? Yeah, it was in Seattle, in Shoreline, yeah. And so we started rehearsing together and had a few gigs, and then that band ended up playing um, through 2001. Um, so, or at least to 2000, because I think that they had a, a Millennium New Year's gig, which I, which I couldn't make at any rate. It was... Um, I played traditional jazz all the way up through the beginning of college, uh, and I went to the University of Washington. And so I was still playing some there, and then at within school, we did more traditional jazz school conservatory stuff. Sure. Um, and that's where I first started listening to more bebop and, and anything past 1950, because I was independently into big band type stuff when I was in high school. It wasn't everybody's like, oh, you're from Seattle. You love grunge. And I was like, <laughs> I was listening to Glenn Miller, you know, which is a little embarrassing, but hey, that's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, um, I was into that. And then I think when I was in college, I thought, oh, well, that was something I did before and I'm not going to get back into it until I was teaching uh, and was contacted by some friends, um, some new friends who actually knew about me um, through Rise and Shine. And they were starting an all-female traditional jazz band entitled Mighty Aphrodite. And so then I started playing with them. And we uh, first got together in 2005 and I think played through 2010 or 2011 until we all were spread across from coast to coast and marriages and children and all sorts sure. of things. But but mostly it was just a flying from Oklahoma and Vancouver and New York was expensive to get everybody there. So yeah. it's just been um, what has been, I think it's a choice because I like it, but it's also, I just got into some great situations. And um, so that's part of part of my reality. And, and here I am in the middle of a, a vibrant scene here in New York too. So Yeah, and that's, that's one thing I want to get to in a little bit is the fact that there is in fact a vibrant scene for this kind of music in New York that mm-hmm. I think is probably under the notice of people who don't even think to look for it. Right. Uh, certainly until I started meeting people who played this music, I didn't even realize there were venues that were regularly, mm-hmm. you know, filling the place for music like this. Uh, but I want to just say on your, your history for a minute, when you, you know, back when you were 14 and were introduced to this music, did you realize then how uncommon at that time it was for people to still be playing this music? Did you think it was, oh, this is kind of an outlier thing, or did it just seem totally normal because of your your age? Then? I... It didn't occur to me that it was not normal. Um, it just seemed like something that was fun to do, and it was social, and I was invited. 
uh, and I liked it because um, I liked, I preferred it to say playing in the youth symphony because I got to play all the time, you know, whereas in youth symphony, I was, I would sit there and play for two minutes and then an hour and a half of rehearsal would go by. And, and so the, the fact that it was a smaller group, I think at that time when I was 14, that's what I realized was like, oh, I get to play all the time. I have my own part. I'm not sharing with other people. And we were playing mostly transcriptions and arrangements at that time. Um, if there's anything that I could do over again, and I've talked to some of my colleagues who were in that original band, we would like to have improvised more within that. So I didn't really understand how important that group improvisation was for the traditional jazz um, because we were playing charts. At the same time, we had, I don't know, 150 different tunes. So, so many red sails in the sunset. It's like what 14 year old in 1994 was playing red sails in the sunset and, and Tico Tico and uh, what else were we doing? Shine and all sorts of other, you know, those sure. early tunes. So. Yeah. I think uh, this earlier this season, Jeff Letterer, saxophone player uh, was on the show and he r recently released an album that kind of harkened back to his own trad roots and you know now he's a fairly experimental player but uh he was talking about the importance of his trad upbringing in kind of instilling in him that passion for group improvisation mm -hmm. so where kind of along the path for you did you first start playing in a band that used more of that that kind of got away from charts and was more about the more traditional kind of group improvisation yeah it was with mighty aphrodite um in 2005 and it wasn't and so I understood then what the role was um, that I was playing in terms of making up those lines and, and having to understand the bass movement and where the melody is and then the counter melodies that I'm doing in between as the trombone player in that three horn front line. Um, but I didn't start to really get into it, like as in, I want to be a fantastic ensemble player, that this is so much more than soloing, um, until maybe... 2010, when it, it was after I moved to New York and started studying a little bit more uh, the earlier, the er, earlier groups. I mean, I've just now gotten into Kid Ori, um, which is sort of funny that because he's at the beginning of it all, right. you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I just I think that it's a, it's a skill. Um, it's so much fun and it's endless, you know, for how, how much you can learn. And, and depending on what, who the lead player is that I'm playing with, a trumpet player or if it's a, a reed player, um, that role changes, you know, or if there's clarinet versus alto. And so it's, it's, I think it's the best way to open your ears is to have to fit in that, that context.
Can you talk about when you started putting your own groups together in this music? Yeah, I think it was 2011. Because, yeah, in in the spring, um, I was uh, Chelsea Barretts, who's a tenor saxophone player, um, had a gig in New Brunswick for the New Brunswick Jazz Project, and then it turned out that she couldn't make that, and so she contacted me and said, you know, these people are going to contact you. Um, they're doing a Woman in Jazz Month uh, for you to bring your group. And I was like, I don't have a group. <laughs> I, I'm but not other than leaving. that, it's great. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So um, a, a friend of mine, Bria Skonberg, another, she was the leader of uh, Mighty Aphrodite uh, and now lives in New York and plays uh, trumpet and sings. And um, I was like... I. I can't do this. She's like, yes, you can just put a group together and go and do it. I was like, okay, here I go. So that was my first gig. Uh, and then it happened to be that the second time I played for those people a couple months later, the new Brunswick jazz project, um, Frank Mulvaney, who was at that time, the president of the New Jersey jazz society happened to be at that gig and then invited me to bring a band to the New Jersey jazz festival. And so it was like, okay. And at that point it was like, well, Who's going to be in this band? What am I going to do? And um, I asked Wycliffe Gordon, or I think I was just complaining to him um, about not knowing who to ask or how to make it work. And he said, I said, I couldn't find a bass player. And he said, well, I'll play bass. And I said, oh, wait a minute. Will you play sousaphone? And uh, so he, he, um, he couldn't really come there under his own name with my group. And so we decided that, we could come up with some sort of, you know, false identity right, for like him. A so. buckshot Lafon kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Kind of, so yeah. he was John Philip Sousaphon. Um, and, nice. and so that's the... <laughs> it's subtle, but it works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> and he came with like full garb on. He had, he had a fake beard and like a fisherman's hat and <laughs> came in with a sousaphone. I saw him and fell out. <laughs> anyway, so that was really the beginning of it, the garden party. Um, and then... Uh, yeah, that that was the beginning of it. And where did your relationship with Wycliffe Gordon start? I met him. He was playing at the Players Club um, for Les Lieber's Friday afternoon, like businessmen's lunch or whatever that they do. Right. A series. Uh, it's called Jazz at Noon or something like that. Anyway, I heard he was playing, and I worked down the street at the time, uh, and so I just was like. I need to meet him. I, I had never met him before. So I just went there and um, introduced myself. You know, hello, Mr. Gordon. I uh, play trombone. And, and of course, he's very gracious. And he's like, great, you know, come up for a lesson sometime. So I took some lessons with him. And he's just, as anybody who's ever met him, he's very gracious. And he's just been a great mentor for me. And as as you know, it's recorded on that, um, Dreams May Take You, played sousaphone and a little bit of trombone. So He's been a, a, a great friend, helped me a lot. So you, uh, as you said, I mean, kind of just out of the blue ended up having to form a band, mm -hmm. and, but fairly soon had to form a band that would regularly play. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you, did you already have connections kind of in the trad jazz world here in New York to know who to go to? How did you put a band together? Yeah, early on after, I, so I moved to New York in order to get my master's degree at Queens College. And that was sort of the excuse of, okay, I want to move to New York. What am I going to do? Well, I'll get a master's degree. Uh, and within the first year, um, I met some of the guys who play on the scene uh, through some people that I met um, 
on the West Coast when I was playing with Mighty Aphrodite. And so I was introduced to uh, a few people here, and then I was invited to play with a band called Baby Soda. Um, they were going down to busk at Obama's first inauguration, which was like the coldest weekend in right. history. <laughs> so we went down there and played on street corners, and um, that was the beginning of my playing with Baby Soda. And I still play with them, so that's been... Um, just about five years, or maybe a little over five years, I've been playing with them. And that band has a pretty revolving cast of people. So, you know, 30 different people play with them at any given time um, for various various different gigs. So that's how I met most of the people on the scene. So I just invited the people, and uh, Garden Party has had a lot of different people play within it. And now there's a fairly set group um, and that's become set partially because of our tours on the West Coast. Uh, the, the same guys have been willing to <laughs> take a risk and just come out there. And I'm like, it's going to be fun. You're not going to make a ton of money, but you'll stay at my parents' house and you'll be comfortable. <laughs> uh, and so it's it's been able to grow from there. But the people who have toured, it helps that two of my band members are also from Seattle. Um, so that's that's the way that the, the band has sort of evolved. But it, it was from that community Um around here, including, uh, you've probably heard of the Mona's session, Tuesdays at Mona's, and that's kind of the, uh, that's the hang, the traditional jazz hang on Tuesday nights, so. traditional jazz is there i mean i guess we always talk about this when talking about playing jazz standards you know how do you find something new to say mm-hmm. but it strikes me that that pressure and i could be wrong and i hope you'll correct me if i am it strikes me that that pressure is not there quite as much in the trad jazz world as it is in the world of jazz replicating jazz from maybe just a few decades later mm-hmm. it seems like there's less less onus on the performer to have some totally new take Mm-hmm. on lazy bones than there is to just play it really well and full of mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. but but i'm more than willing to be proven wrong if that's not the case oh no I, I i like how you said that i think one of the really um one of the key things that happens with that now is that it, people are going less 
making a new statement with it. And that's definitely something that we do. But a lot of people are getting into the we want to play it exactly the way that it would have been played by Louis Armstrong's Hot Fives or something like that. So a little bit of that recreation. Um, and I have a lot of respect for that. And I um, appreciate that they do that. Vince Giordano is one who is, you know, in terms of doing that in New York, well, worldwide for that matter, is playing those stock arrangements, um, which is obviously different than the group improvisation, but in terms of music of the 1920s and before, really playing that as accurately as possible. So I think that is a very interesting difference from um, then the American songbook being played in a dramatically different different ways. Um, and when you're referring to, to Vince, for example, playing it as accurately as possible, where does that where is that accuracy expressed? Is that rhythmically or through the choice of instruments or how, other than being just you know playing all the same notes that are in the arrangement? Are there other things that make it accurate as opposed to just playing the notes right that are on the page? My understanding is it, um, phrasing the way that they would have phrased at that time in terms of um, dynamics vibrato yeah just all of the 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 musical details really studying the recordings and making it and i'm i'm just not a very good historian with that sort of thing um because i maybe i'm less detail oriented or something like that <laughs> but i think it has to do with yeah every every facet of the performance even and it's neat to watch if anybody hasn't gone to iguana now is where vince's band is um the Nighthawks is they have those um, they have like clarinet uh, megaphones with the holes in the sides so that 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 when there's a section solely the guys have their clarinets in these megaphones and their hands can go in so those really traditional things that nobody uses anymore because we have so many microphones and so much different technology but it's really cool to go there and hear it the way that you would have heard it, you know, a recreation of that. Um, and it sounds really fresh. That's the interesting thing. You go there and it sounds really fresh. You're not like, oh, it's old and dated. It's just like really fun. So. And when you were describing that approach to recreation, it sounded like you were going to get to the end of that and say, but this is how Garden Party does it. It doesn't sound like that's exactly your your mission. So can you talk about kind of what your, your guiding vision is for Garden Party? Yeah. My, my guiding, guiding vision, I think is still working itself out. Uh, I think I'm really drawn to being able to play the whole spectrum. Um, I've been writing some new music recently and I feel like every time I write a new tune, it's sort of like a new kid, like having a new child born and it comes out and it's like, why does this one have curly blonde hair and blue eyes like that? Where did this come from? So I would think that my compositions would be very traditional jazz based and they're not. There are a couple that have a little bit of a sort of gospel flavor, et cetera. But, um, and I think that just comes from my love of so many different varieties of music. And I think for garden party, I just, I want to be able to do those. I want to be able to play something from 1925 really, really accurately the way they would have done it or do it completely differently. Anyway, it, I would like to be able to play in Garden Party really authentically all the way through. And the Hoagie Carmichael show that we do 
um, there is a lot of that. There's there's a little bit of, you know, Harmon mute trumpet, you know, sounds that you really and and Mike Davis, who's my um, my usual trumpet player, my primary trumpet player, uh, he is amazing because he can dial into his mind. I want to sound like Freddie Hubbard in 1962. And he just thinks about that. And he's able to just really, I mean, obviously it doesn't sound exactly like that, but he, that's the way that his brain works. Um, and his real love is big spider back in the early, the early stuff, but he can play, you know, so much, um, of the history. And I love to draw on that and be able to just sort of exploit the talents of all the guys in the band. Um, I guess if I were to say what my goal is now, or one of my goals is to really utilize all the skills of all the players in the band to, to the, just fill up all of the space, you know, with, with their talents and not leave anything left behind. So it's an experiment all the time, you know. Carmichael show and also about Carnival of Joy which I yeah. assume springs from it or is the genesis of it I'm not sure which yeah. order they came in but what happened was I was um, listening to a couple songs I don't remember what the first one that I heard that sort of struck me and I looked up who wrote it but it was it's like oh Hoagie Carmichael and I think probably two of them was, was like Stardust everybody loves Stardust it's gorgeous written by Hoagie Carmichael Skylark oh yeah Hoagie Carmichael wrote that too Riverboat Shuffle, which is one that Big Spiderbeck recorded, and it has that real, um, you know, traditional hard-driving Dixieland sort of sound. And I use that word a little bit lightly because I don't like the way that it, the memory, the the red stripes and garters that it, it brings up. But it is a sort of certain style um, that I don't know how to describe it because it's not a New Orleans sound necessarily. It's a little bit more of a the revival sound. Anyhow, uh, so I started listening to some Hoagie Carmichael. I just looked him up on Spotify, and 
it, all of these looking things. Looking Hoagie Carmichael up on Spotify is the perfect like closing of the circle, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I started listening to Hoagie on Spotify. Yeah. You know, like all the kids are doing. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> listening to Lords Royals and then, you know, usually Stardust or something yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. So it was just a matter of finding those tunes and, and for example, um, Baltimore Oriole, which we recorded. Anyway, so I thought... Here are a bunch of tunes that people know and they like, Georgia on my mind. And then here are a bunch of tunes that people aren't doing as much. Um, And so I thought I would like to do some sort of, not necessarily a tribute show, but a celebration show. And um, so I started planning that, just picking a bunch of tunes that I liked and then actually booked some shows under that name of the Hoagie Carmichael show, which then the name of the show became Carnival of Joy, a celebration of Hoagie Carmichael. Um, Carnival of Joy comes from a line from the tune Jubilee. I just started amassing these songs and writing arrangements of them uh when the shows were booked then i thought well if we're going to go on tour with this then i should probably record something and so we went into the studio and that carnival of joy we went in recorded it in a live like situation with like a vocal pa and stuff and just recorded for four hours and then got those six tracks uh, there because we didn't have enough time and there wasn't enough money to do something else and I really wanted the live sound with the whole the whole group so um, it turned out much better than I thought it would you know and it's it's really something because Dreams May Take You was a long process it's also a longer CD there are more tracks there are more people involved there was more post-production work um, and then Carnival of Joy was just this thing that was just like I don't want to say thrown together because that sounds like lack of quality, but it was just like, it was a rush job. It's just like, get that music in the can and go. Uh, And it's great because that, it captures the sound of the band that I'm currently playing with. And you, I think you hear a little bit of everybody on it, on those six tracks, including that (laughs) Sean Cronin's arrangement of Rock and Chair, which came about from my, my roommate, Marcus said, you know, that uh, D'Angelo stole his uh, his untitled tune, How Does It Feel, from Hoagie Carmichael. And I was like, really? He's like, dee-da-dee-da. Old rockin' chairs got me. Aha, interesting. <laughs> so I sat down with Sean and we started playing with that a little bit. And then he wrote that arrangement in, in the day before the recording session. And then we came in and recorded it. And I love it because it's something that's outside of my normal thinking. I I wouldn't know how to voice something like that, or I wouldn't know how to structure a tune in that way. And so it's really nice. I think that's my favorite track on the album, just because it's so different than all the others and something that I could have dreamed up myself, which makes me so grateful that no matter how hard I plan, the magic really happens from the collaboration of the guys in the group.
by my side Fetch me my ginseng For I tan your hide Can't get from this cabin The flies around my rocking chair It's interesting to me that almost everybody I know who plays in the trad jazz world is in their 20s and 30s, um, you know, with the exception of people like Vince, but the, you know, just kind of the people who are, as far as I know, playing at Mona's and places like that all seem to be, you know, younger musicians, which is interesting to me. And I wonder what kind of people come out to your shows and what it looks like when you look out from the bandstand. Who are you seeing? Well, just in terms of... um... The, the younger people that you know who are playing this, there is um, just less than a generation older than us. Um, there are a lot of people who really laid this foundation who were playing this music um, before it became the sort of um, whiskey and, and fancy microbrew of the time, you know, of this this sort of revival time. And so we really, we owe a lot to them um, one person who's in our scene who's just a little bit older than us is Dan Levinson. He's on that first recording. And people like Ed Pulser, uh, Cynthia Sayer, um, John Allred, Warren Vachet, a lot of these guys, and of course Warren and John Allred are people who play in every scene because they can. But um, in terms of our audience, there's a lot of swing dancers who are in their 20s, 30s, um, there are a lot of people who don't know that they like this music and they just sort of come and they're overcome with joy. <laughs> I don't know what this is, but I like it, you know? And so they start coming back. And I think a lot of those people then invite us to play at their weddings and they're hearing it, um, whether they're hearing it on the street or they walk into Mona's or they're coming to Radagast and Radagast is a beer hall um, in Williamsburg where a lot of us play with various different I mean, garden party plays there, baby soda plays there. Uh, Gordon Owe's ensemble, the Grand Street Stompers plays there, all sorts of people. And and that is a good example of people who come in. Um, we get Wall Street guys who come in there in their suits and they're like, let's, you know, let's go to Brooklyn <laughs> and drink some beer. And so they, they come in and uh, and dig it, you know, or, or don't notice that we're there. But oftentimes they, they dig it. Um, but often we get, like I was playing a brunch today, and it was mostly young people who dressed up to come to brunch and whether or not they were listening. Um, then there was an older couple who came in uh, because a lot of the people who are in their 60s and 70s, 80s, 90s, if they hear about that this music is happening, they'll show up and they'll follow some of us around. Um, and that's really great. I value those people so much who really know this music almost better than we do, even if they're not musicians. You know, people like my grandmother, who's like, knows all the recordings of Frank Sinatra. And of course, that's later stuff. But um, 
it's a real it's a mixed bag of people who come um, there's theater crowds if we play in New Jersey I often get people who are in their 70s through 90s but also some some middle-aged folks yeah yeah, it's really interesting. I, one thing about listening to music like this, whenever I do, it sounds, at least to my ear, so much newer and more interesting than revisiting uh, standards from the in the style of like the late '40s to the late '60s. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I'm not even sure which of those two eras of music has been done more to death. Mm-hmm. But certainly in the jazz scene, as we kind of understand it in New York and around the world, that second set of standards, both ones penned by those musicians and the Broadway tunes that they were playing, mm-hmm. they just feel to me, it feels to me like it's a lot harder to make something fresh out of that music. As opposed to when I hear bands like yours, just because I don't hear that music that much, all of a sudden it sounds like music of both the past and the future at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's just this, it is timeless in the way... I want that word to mean. You know? Yeah, yeah. There hasn't been a lot that's been recorded and was popular between, and I'm sure that, you know, somebody's going to hear me say this and they're going to be like, that's not true, this and this and this. But <laughs> in my opinion, there was the the West Coast revival, the Chicago revival, things that were happening, like Eddie Condon, for example, in the 50s and 60s, and Louis Armstrong, for that matter, with his all-stars. and But even at that time, that music wasn't getting a lot of fanfare. It was pop music. Um, but between the 50s and 60s, when that revival was happening, and recently, there just hasn't been as much recorded. And so while jazz in the I want to call it traditional sense of what people think in terms of Miles Davis or um, John Coltrane. Where, and I think a lot of times that people are like, oh, I love jazz. It's like, oh, you do. What what kind of jazz do you love? And I'm always curious to hear what people say about that. Sure. Um, but I think a lot of that was sort of recreated or um, replicated, and so you do hear that. And I think that's what what we're talking about is that. You heard that a lot. And what is on a lot of jazz radio, uh, you turn it on and it's a certain limited amount. Um, and the energy is very similar, I feel like. It, and that may be what it is, too, is that the energy just sort of stays a little bit constant, whether it's a little edgier or it's a little calmer. But I think with the traditional jazz, it's it just has a lot more dynamic variety. Um, not only dynamics as in volume, but just the dynamic that you get from it. So, And there's something about the, I mean, the, you know, your album is called, the second album is called Carnival of Joy. I mean, there's mm-hmm. something about, uh, and regular listeners to the show have just dozed off because they can already tell what I'm about to say. <laughs> uh, but there's something about, for me, about joy in music that um, its its presence connects me to the music in a way that almost no other emotion does. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't just, it's not, joy doesn't just for me have to mean happy music, Mm -hmm. but music that obviously sounds like there is passionate emotional engagement on the part of the player. And I Mm -hmm. think in, at least for me, in trad jazz, that comes through in a very clear, pure, easy to understand way. Mm -hmm. You know, not to undercut its musicianship or anything, but just to say that there's not, it's not as hard to figure out why it's good or why it's fun to listen to mm-hmm. as it might be for the average person to figure out why some Coltrane records 
mm-hmm. are good. You know, mm-hmm. to just hear where that passion is, it might be harder for people to latch onto that mm-hmm. than in trad jazz, where it just feels like it's a little more on the surface of the skin. Mm-hmm. I don't know if yeah. that's a fair statement, but yeah, I think it's extremely accessible music. At the same time, I think it's very sophisticated, and I think when you can have something that's very sophisticated and something that's very accessible, success is on the way. You know, and when it when it is equally as satisfying to the performer as it is to the listener, because I think sometimes it's hard to tell, especially within you know the genre of jazz. It's like, who's having more fun here, the audience or the performers, or is nobody having fun? <laughs> do you, wait, do you hate this? Do you hate this? What are you thinking? But you both love it because you're focusing so hard. I'm not sure. You know, right? Um, so I think it is. It's really clear when somebody's enjoying this kind of music. You. You can see it on the performers and, you know, within the audience. It also suits my personality really well. And I think that if I had a different personality, it might not suit me as well. But I like sort of jovial and gregarious and, you know, all sorts of things. It, um, yeah, I don't know what it would feel like to be somebody who is maybe more solemn. They might not enjoy it quite as much so i think it's it's also just a personal choice yeah you've got another project in the works called endangered species will you talk about that yeah um one of the variations of garden party is the bass saxophone quartet i was invited by um someone to play at the rum house in times square and so we started and and it was like okay you have to make a small band like small as in you can't physically take up a lot of space. It's like, okay, well, what can we do? So um, Tom Abbott, the reed player in Garden Party, had just purchased a bass saxophone. I was like, hey, do you want to come and play the bass part for this? So we've been playing together in that ensemble. Uh, and then we were on tour in San Francisco and linked up with Rob Reich, who's a great accordionist and a pianist out there and is involved in a lot of different um a lot of different very creative projects. So he was in New York. Well, I was in San Francisco. He hired me for a duo gig. And then I had something coming up, again, with those same New Brunswick jazz project, those folks who are very nice to let me come and bring whatever group it is that I feel like. <laughs> we did a, a, a quartet with two trombones and bass and guitar. Shannon Barnett and I went out there and uh, and played that. So this time I was like, well, we need to fit in a compact car um, and Rob's going to be in town, so I wonder what we can come up with. And as as Rob posted on Facebook, he's like, we surprised ourselves with how wonderful it was. So accordion, bass saxophone, and trombone is what endangered species is. Um, because it makes me think of... There Man, was... that's just so tired, that grouping of instruments, right? I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. God, if I had a dollar for every accordion, <laughs> bass saxophone, exactly. trombone band. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like everybody sees it and they're like, oh, I know what this is going to sound like. <laughs> right, exactly. I have yeah, all their records that's already. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really excited because it's for the first time in many, many years, I want to play um, classical music. I want to play um, Schubert Leader. I want to play uh, waltzes. I want to write new music for this particular ensemble. Um, so we recorded a few things. Uh, yeah, I just, I want to see where it can go. Well, you've been kind enough uh, on the show to let us actually hear one of these endangered species tunes. Do you want to pick one for us? Um, well, what I really want 
for people to hear is Home on the Range. Good, because that's the one I would have picked if you'd chosen <laughs> something else. I probably would have vetoed you. So, <laughs> so talk yeah. about this. Well, we we decided uh, Rob was in town and he was supposed to leave on a Monday uh, and there was going to be a snowstorm. And I said, hey, wait a minute. Hopefully your flight will get canceled. And if so, then let's go into the studio and record something. So it was like 3.30 a.m. Uh, on Monday morning when we confirmed that he could change his flight and that we were going to record that night. So talk about zero preparation time for a recording session. And I had an old tune that I had written and I had a new tune that I had written and then I didn't even know if we were going to record those. So we get in there and I said to Tom, I said, uh, what do you want to record? He said, home on the range. And Rob said, like, like the old folks. Tom's like, yeah. It's like, okay. And so he just launched in and just did the first bit all by himself. And it's the first time we'd played it together. My father sang it to me four times a week growing up my whole life. It's just like, oh, wow, another tune that I'm recording that my dad sang, and I never would have thought that I would be recording it while living in New York. And, you know, especially with this instrumentation. <laughs> so yeah. we just did it, and and I love it. I mean, I love the sound of the bass saxophone, and I think that Tom's very musical, and I love the way that he plays, and then just the whimsy. I mean, the whole project is so whimsical. At the same time, Rob and Tom are such sympathetic musicians. They're so much fun to play with um, that even though it's sort of a silly song, I think it works, and it, I don't know, it brings a smile to my face, so I hope people enjoy it too. well let's hear a, an exclusive on the jazz session of endangered species playing the the modern classic home on the range <laughs> Thank you. 
was Endangered Species with Home on the Range. You heard it here first. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that with us. I really appreciate that we got to hear that here. It's really great. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. So what do you envision as Endangered Species goes forward? You talked about you know the repertoire that you might play. Are, are you already writing for it and, and kind of starting to have a vision for where it might go? Yeah, I'm... I, it that consists of a lot of conversations in my head as I've been on runs or um, talking to Rob on the phone about different things that he's interested. In. Another thing that we recorded on there was a, a waltz. Um, I think it's a French waltz. Uh, but just realizing what we can pull together. I would love to play chamber music festivals. Um, I I think the group that I'd like to model myself model us after in this. Uh, even though it's very different style, but the Yo-Yo Ma, Edgar Meyer, Bela Fleck, in terms of they just play all different styles um, and can sort of fit in, and they're just so virtuosic and wonderful. Sure. You know? um, and it's almost as, in that band, it feels like it's almost as if it's the sonic palette that unifies all that music rather yeah. than they play anything, but it's that interesting combination of people mm-hmm. that makes it all sound like it works. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's... Um, just what I envision for Endangered Species. So the first time that that band is going to play together again after doing this recording, and luckily we were able to, within that, I don't know, 18-hour period of planning for the session, we were able to get a videographer to come in. So there is a little bit of video of us recording. And, of course, we were in, we were recording at Peter Carl's um, studio, which is just down the street here. And uh, I imagine that... We will play, my, my plan as of right now is probably October-ish. We'll have a garden party tour go down the West Coast and then endangered species come up, um, back. So we'll go down in a van and come back in a car or something like that. <laughs> um, and then hopefully Rob will be back in town in the fall, also in New York. So we'll do our first stuff. And whether we release these recordings as an EP, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but probably similar because there, there are six, I think, five or six tracks that we're going to use. So, um, yeah, we'll see. I'd love to get a residency at a Banff or something like that. Or maybe we'll just find an Airbnb house and go and <laughs> study right. for a while and write yeah. some music together. So. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This has really nothing to do with the music, but I just remember reading it in your bio, it, and I assume it was not a typo, that you got three bachelor's degrees at the same time? Is that Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I can only imagine there were like a lot of amphetamines involved or something. How, does, how do you even get three bachelor's degrees at the same time? Well, it helps. They're all within the music field. So there's, there's a, fair amount of, a fair amount of carryover. But... So what, what are they in? Uh, a bachelor of arts in music... Um, I think that's the jazz studies. I think it's a bachelor of arts in jazz studies. And then I have a bachelor of, 
Bachelor of Art. Anyway, it was a double degree in music education. Okay. And then in jazz studies, which had also been a double degree, but um, so it's like basic music, jazz education. Gotcha. I think they were just like, okay, you have 500 credits or something like that. Can you just get out of here? They were sending me letters like, you have too many credits. You can't do this. So I did it in six years, and I took, I think, an average of 20 credits per quarter. You're oh, insane. Yeah, it was too much. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Understatedly put. Yeah. <laughs> but I got to do everything that I wanted to do at that time. If I could go back and um, go to school again and take 10 credits per term and do a better job of practicing my horn and all of that, I would love to, but that's probably not going to happen. And you were you were still playing all that time too, right? You were still gigging all that yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. No, it was a, a fair amount when I first started college. And when I started the music education um, degree and I was teaching at a high school, I was teaching a 6.30 a.m. jazz band. This was the term that I was taking 26 credits. It was, I think I, I had like 19 credits of in-class time, seven credits of online. And then I was teaching at 6.30 every day. And I, I'm not sure what else I was doing. It's great because other than the fact that you play trad jazz trombone, you don't particularly come across as a nerd. But the more <laughs> you talk, the clearer it is, right? <laughs> oh, which, totally. which is awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I was a band director. <laughs> right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. It's, you're yeah. done for. Yeah. 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 No, it's just, yeah, the more the more time you spend. As Jay Lepley, the drummer who plays in Garden Party, he's like, the longer you know me, the weird, weirder I get. Like, That's a good thing. It means yeah. you get more interesting. Yeah, exactly. You know, so. so what's coming up for Garden Party? What uh, What's happening on the horizon? What about future recordings, future tours? You mentioned already uh, one in the fall. Yeah. Uh, I would like to record this summer, um, do something that is... Uh, I don't know exactly what's going to happen with the Hoagie Carmichael show. At some point, there'll be a concert DVD. Um, whether oh, that's in the next year or the next five years, I don't know. It's just as that show, um, I've been putting more original music into it. So it's music by Hoagie Carmichael and inspired by Hoagie Carmichael. Um, and so I'll do something with that. But I, I would like to record a children's album because I think that would be fun. But I think the next thing that's really going to come up will be a full-length album of um originals and um just great hits of the 20s and 30s yeah <laughs> so that's great it's it it's heavily on my mind of what to do and i find that if i make a um a crisis like if i say okay cd re cd release party october october 14th great okay start booking that <laughs> right okay and now we need an album <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> Same yeah. way you put together all your bands and everything else. That's right? exactly yeah. it. There's a gig. Yeah. That's it. Yep. I yeah. Make make a plan. Tell people about it, and then have a panic attack and then finish it. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On my uh, trip this time to New York, I listened for the ten thousandth time to the BBC Hitchhiker's Guide, and there's a uh, a bit there where uh, people who have essentially cured all disease have then invented a device that gives them all the symptoms of a broken arm or being chased by dangerous predators or whatever so that they will achieve more without the inconvenience of actually having to have a broken arm or be killed by dangerous animals or whatever it sounds like that's very much the way your musical career yes. is shaping up also yep. that's nice yeah yeah it's good it gives me time to procrastinate yeah you know as, 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 i can decide how long that's gonna take right exactly yeah. that's great 
So last uh, October, I think it was, mm-hmm. you guys went to Israel um, and played in a festival there. Can you talk about bringing this music there and what that was like? Yeah. They, uh, the Ashdod Super Jazz Festival, uh, Leonid Tashka is the, um, he is the visionary for that. And um, Ashdod is just about an hour south of um, Tel Aviv. And um, so he puts on this two-day festival, and I played it um, in 2010, 2011 maybe, with Baby Soda, the band that I was talking about before. We went there and played for them. And basically what it is is they have one um, major uh, U.S. star. like So Randy um, Brecker was there the first time that I went, and Joe Lovano was the, the headliner this time and they like to bring in a a new york trad jazz group for a grand finale to get everybody you know excited sure um at the end so they invited us to come and that was wonderful we got to take i got to bring three guys with me um and then i used um a local bass player and then we did a little bit of touring around the country mostly just sightseeing because it's gorgeous we played at a couple clubs too one in Tel Aviv and one in the middle of the desert uh, in Mitzvah Ramon, which just drove out there. And it's kind of like being on the moon. It's really, really amazing. Cool. But the people received the music very, very well at the, the festival. Um, and it was nice. The The evening had a lot of different kinds of jazz. And he has the um, Ashdod Symphony there, too. So they have various guest artists Um singing and playing with with that and then a little bit of dixieland for the end of the night nice um so it was it was great i'm really grateful for that opportunity to be there that's great my guest is emily asher and it's been a a real pleasure to meet you and to hear your story and i hope you'll come back again on the show thanks for being here thank you thanks for having me nice to meet you too music from Emily Asher and Garden Party. Thanks to Emily for being on the show, and thanks to Nadia Nordhaus, who's the person who suggested Emily Asher for the show. 
Speaking of people I should thank, thank you to the Respect Sextet, all six of them, for the theme music to this show. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the logo. Thank you for listening, and if you need some professional writing done for you, why not visit CraneWrites.com, CraneWrites.com, my freelance writing site. I've done all kinds of things, from liner notes to press releases to bios, and I'd be happy to do writing for you. That's it for this show. Tune in next week for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.